0: Hi there, and welcome to this episode, episode two of Red Fight Back Central Committee broadcast. I'm T, and this week we'll be looking at the latest CC meeting, looking back over the year, chatting to Leo about party finances. Uh, but first, we'll be going to Sean and Angel for the News Roundup.
1: What's happened with uh, Lord Frost, who was the government's Brexit minister? Can you give me a rundown?
2: So we've got Lord Frost has resigned from, from Boris Johnson's cabinet. Um it's come kind of in the wake of a bunch of like turmoil um, in the Johnson government. But if you look at the content of his resignation, it has absolutely nothing to do with like the sort of political spats or the parties or anything like that. It's very much economically focused. Uh, he's not managing to get the sort of hard line deregulation, low tax, sort of economic regime that he was promising people as part of the, the Brexit. Um, and he's res- sort of resigned on that principle. Um, and he's obviously quite strongly backed by a large number of a sort of coalescing of forces that are all really concerned with, like, those two facets of, of um, tax and regulation, who want this this much lower tax um, deregulated environment. But it's just not actually economically possible for Britain at the moment, um, because there's no real way to, like like, legally we're decoupled from the EU. We're we're out of the the legal jurisdiction of the EU, but in order to be able to export commodities to the EU, they have to still meet those standards, um, which is the same same problem that the US has trying to export things to the EU. Often, um, is that they 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 don't meet these standards. Now, often the standards are kind of justified on the basis of health or whatever, but really they are just kind of protectionist measures to to improve like the standing of the European industries themselves. But there's no way for you know the, them to like up the the maximum threshold of bugs in cornflakes or whatever, and still then be able to export those products, and that's also kind of at the centre of the dispute around the North of Ireland um, and the the sort of customs agreement there, where there's actually a, a customs border in the North Sea, which um, the Brexiters are really unhappy with, um, because you know they're trying to sort of square that circle of well, how can we how can we be in different legal jurisdictions and still have no border checks in either place, and that just that just doesn't work. So they've not managed to solve that problem, um, and he's not managed to get his low tax and his deregulation, um because of the, the economic circumstances, so he's resigned. Um, I don't think it has particularly huge political implications. He's obviously quite a a well respected figure within the Conservatives, um, and so forth. So like, there's a a big political splash from it, but he's really just indicating problems that that nobody else has any better solution to either.
1: This has obviously been quite a bad week for the government. Everything kind of stacking up against them.
2: It does feel like it's one thing after another, all piling up at the moment.
1: I don't see this really unseating them or
2: anything like that, but um, it certainly it seems more like a warning shot um to to address the areas of discontentment around the economy to maybe cut back on. You know, they're always highlighting oh, it's the the highest tax rate since um since the the Great War. Like that is something deeply unacceptable to the the sort of sort of Reaganite economics. But there's been massive massive spending on like the the vaccines and um, various infrastructure projects, and we're seeing that in the the US as well with the sort of fight over like the seven um, Build Back Better bill. Yeah, I think like that that's really the the issue at hand, and nobody else is going to be a better place to solve it. So they may as well just let let it continue to to like ruin Boris's term. And then when a solution does start to present itself, which it in you know, all likelihood won't, then then maybe they'll consider sort of trying a a, a more serious challenge.
1: That's, yeah, that sounds about right to me. Absolutely. Now, I do believe you have something that you want to touch on on Nord Stream uh, and the current current issues going on between Ukraine and the EU and Russia and the US. Before you get into it, I'm going to give just a quick rundown just of how we kind of ended up here. To give you the, the super simplified version of it, uh, 1954, the region Crimea, uh, which is that little bit underneath Ukraine with the poor Sevastopol on it. Uh, 1954, that was given to Ukraine, the Ukrainian SSR, by the Russian SSR uh, who had owned it previously. Fast forward to the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. Uh, the Crimean region had a massive, overwhelming yes vote to become, again, uh, the Crimean uh, Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic, uh, which stopped existing when it became, uh, you know, part of the larger Russian SSR and then the the Ukrainian SSR. It didn't exist as its own separate one, but they voted in favour of bringing that back. It did not happen, and it became part of now post-Soviet Ukraine. Skip ahead to 2013 and 2014 the Euromaidan coup and kind of change of power in Ukraine, which was a lovely alliance of pro European Union liberal groups uh, and Nazis, as well as kind of like militant anarchist blocks that came together to topple the Yanukovych government, which had been in Ukraine, uh, which had been traditionally pro Russian. Following that kind of takeover and collapse. Crimea was um the term annex gets thrown around a lot you know it's a <laughs> it's it's a bit of a hot button word it kind of depends on how you look at it what is for certain is uh, Crimea again voted in favor of not being part of Ukraine as it had done all the way back when it voted to be part of the Russian Federation which it now is and all but essentially you know it's not not recognised but that's actually what the day to day is like there is as part of the russian federation along with that as part of the kind of fallout in 2014 in eastern ukraine uh, the regions of donbass Donetsk, and luhansk where the majority of the population would have considered themselves russian they would have spoke russian primarily a region that really does remember and looks back to the days of the soviet union more than uh, maybe some other areas in Ukraine. They decided that they were up and out of Ukraine. Their new statehood, uh, as like kind of republics, is only really recognised by Russia and some other, you know, like other small statelets that, that all kind of recognise each other. Since 2014, there's been pretty severe fighting uh, between those eastern regions and the kind of Ukrainian military. As well as against like uh, kind of Ukrainian Nazi armed groups that have come forward. Some of them are official military, some of them aren't. Now that border crisis has led to to where we are now with Ukraine as a member of the European Union, not a member of NATO, up against um, forces that are uh, essentially Russian backed, uh, but as well as that do just border the Russian Federation outright, so it wouldn't even matter if they were backed, it would be Russia's business either way, and that's kind of led to where we are now, where Ukraine isn't in NATO, they're kind of standing by themselves, yet the European continent seems to have been kind of dragged to a halt by all this uh, anyway, uh, and it's uh, as uh, all other politics uh, on the European continent that involve the US, it has come back and it has affected the Nord Stream project, which is where we bring ourselves up to present day.
2: Right. I'm going to touch as well on the, the sort of dispute around NATO membership as well, because I think there's a few things to, to touch on there. So when it comes to Ukraine in particular, there's no real way for there to be a, a NATO membership anytime soon, because one of the conditions for NATO membership is there there's no current border disputes, because otherwise, if there was a current border dispute, then you'd be a, a hair's breadth away from activating the mutual defense clauses of the treaty, which would either... Like expose NATO as defunct in the case of Ukraine, or would actually force, you know, a NATO deployment to to attempt to, to win that that war, get those get Crimea back, get the autonomous regions back. And there's not there's not really an appetite for from NATO to, to go and fight Russia here. And um, they're not willing to put NATO troops towards it. America has said they're not putting troops towards it. Uh, you know, they've threatened the, the harshest sanctions ever, including withdrawal from SWIFT. Which notably was was replied to within about a week that Russia and China are partnering on a swift alternative. So that's something to watch. Separate to that, Ukraine's not going to accede to to NATO membership without like it effectively surrendering those current areas because they're not really equipped to, to go like win them back at the moment. So that's kind of the the situation there. There's not going to be a NATO membership, but you know America in particular would really love for there to be a a war because that would actually properly destabilize the transit of Russian gas, possibly the kind of circumstance in which pipelines could get blown up by, you know, some supposedly non-state terrorist actor or something where, you know, sufficiently removed from it straight up being the US military doing it, that there's not quite the same level of response capable, the kind of thing that we've seen in in what gets termed grey zone warfare in recent years. The reason for that is because the US wants to be the main gas supplier for Europe, but the... Shipping of worse quality liquid natural gas from the u s to Europe is about three times more expensive than the better quality gas being piped from Russia. Gas supplies in Europe are dwindling, they are desperate to turn on Nord Stream 2, but there's these continued disputes about it. Germany recently announced oh, there's not going to be an approval decision in the first half of next year, which immediately caused uh, another 10% price bump, which does pose the question, did they say that to get the 10% price bump? But gas supplies in Europe are dwindling, gas is getting more and more expensive, prohibitively so, and they are just desperate to to turn on that new pipeline, which is why we're seeing, you know... There's a new bill in the U.S. Senate to try and sanction the thing again. They've sanctioned this thing so many times it's had no effect. U.S. sanctions are not going to stop this pipeline. It's already been built. Like, th- this thing is, is ready to to go. It's just waiting for regulatory approval. Um, and I think they're they're trying all sorts of things to, to stir up media around Ukraine. Russia's been very clear they've got no interest in actually starting a war there. NATO membership isn't on the cards. I don't think we're actually going to see the kind of conflict that is being hyped up and hyped up in the media but they are trying to use that to swing against the turning on of this pipeline.
1: Great. What great stuff. Um, fantastic. Uh, well, the best of luck to I guess the people that want out of Ukraine. Uh, it's the only people I really am um, massively in favor of. Are there any little updates on the two strikes that we talked about last time, the the UCU strikes uh, again. You see, you are still working on uh, action short of a strike, which is uh, an- another option when you get your strike ballot out. You you get a yes no question of do you want a strike? Yes no. Uh, do you want to take action short of a strike? Yes no. Now strike obviously is easy. Uh, you know what that means. Uh, action short of a strike is decided upon by uh, usually the kind of committees who also de- uh, decide on strike action when it's going to be. Uh, In this case, the UCU's action short of a strike is working to contract, which is working exactly what it says on the paper of your contract. No additional hours. No doing work when you're off work, basically no covering for for colleagues or anything like that. Fully straight to the paper and not giving a, a single extra second of your time, which especially in the teaching uh, and kind of um, higher education world is is a is a big blow to be honest. The RNT strike on the the night trip is still go on from five trip lines. Uh, there is a second 24-hour strike uh, as part of it. Now they they done uh, a 24-hour strike back in uh, November, which then led up to uh, night tube strikes uh, over the start of December because the night tube had which had gone away for COVID had come back. They're now going back to another 24-hour strike. So uh, good luck to them. and Good luck to the, the RMT. <laughs>
0: Thanks so much to Sean and Angel for this week's news roundup and now I'm joined by Leo to talk about party finances and the work that they've been doing. Hey Comrade, how are you doing?
3: Hey Comrade, I'm doing very well. How are you?
0: I'm doing good, thank you lovely. So a couple of months into our term, how are you finding being finance secretary?
3: I am actually really enjoying being finance secretary. So before I was finance secretary I was on, I was on comms which was very um reactive and a lot of you know writing i had to do a lot of reading of things in order to write tweets um i had to learn a lot of new skills and i have to say with finance it's right in my kind of wheelhouse i love a spreadsheet i love a number i love a little bit of kind of properly applied power yeah it's it's i'm really enjoying it it's uh,
0: it's it suits me very well it does it does and you're doing you're doing great work with it and very thankful to have you there well thank you comrade So tell me, what have you done with party finances so far?
3: So, so far, um, the major thing I've done is we've got a bank account set up for the party. We wanted some continuity between, between finance secretaries and across the party in general. We don't want to be paying money into someone's personal account anymore. So the first thing I've done is get that set up. Um, It's a lot more of an accountable process we've got you know i'm sharing all of the the logins with well with you and when that's set up Um, and that means that no one person is going to be able to make transactions by themselves the second thing i've done is i've done a big analysis of all of the historic finance data that we have which goes back to sort of may 2020 and i've gone through all of that information and had a look at how much we've been paying to branches how much we've been paying for congress what kind of things are being asked for and being requested? Where our money is going? And through that, got an idea of kind of the projections of, of how much money we might need in the future. The other thing I've done is I have reworked the party accounts to run from Congress to Congress. It makes sense to have a term of the Central Committee kind of start fresh with their budget. So the budget now starts, sort of resets or starts again in um, September And runs through to the beginning of the next September. So those are the three major things that I've done.
0: All right so where do you want our finances to be by the end of our term by next congress?
3: So my first thinking on where I wanted our finances to be is I wanted everything that should be paid for internally to be paid for internally. So I didn't want to be relying kind of centrally on the generosity of any one particular comrade practically what this means is that I wanted the party to be meeting its costs in terms of its tech infrastructure, um, in terms of any kind of central printing that we do, and in terms of how much we can subsidize Congress. So I wanted the party to be, um, to be, yes, to be sustainable in that, in that sense, so that our subs income was, was meeting those, those major um, outgoings prior to this financial year um we had been relying on the generosity of one or two comrades to support some aspects of our internal tech infrastructure and, and that was definitely a situation that i wanted to rectify um once that has been done and that has now broadly been done you know thanks to the um the excellent up- uptake of the uh, of the membership on subs um, which for which i'm extremely grateful um that has now been covered and so now i can start looking ahead I want to make sure that there are no projects in the party that are failing purely for lack of funds. Um, I want to make sure that the branches um, have access to money that they need to do things that fit with the party strategy. At the moment, there isn't a huge amount of kind of spare money in the budget. We are meeting our costs and we are meeting sort of branch costs in the sense that comrades are able to access central funds for things like some stall costs, some printing costs at the end of this year, I'd like to maybe get to the stage where we are being a little bit more thoughtful in branches about money we're spending. So for example, I would like at the end of this year to have um, some kind of financial representative within branches who I meet with on a regular basis to find out how much money branches are spending and to find out what 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 other money branches might want to spend but but can't at the moment. So I think this um, CC term I think will be sort of moving towards the professionalization of our finances and the professionalization of how we manage our internal money.
0: Yeah, fully. I, I mean, I completely agree with all of those ideas. And, and I think there's something interesting as well in how sort of our two roles interplay in terms of you as finance secretary and myself in, in a fundraising secretary capacity, um, just because I think like, obviously, I'm, I'm trying to do the work of expanding how much we've got in terms of resources, but you're doing the work consolidating and making sure that what we do have is um, used in the best way possible um, which I think interplay off each other nicely.
3: Yeah definitely I think the two two are really related. Um, I think your your role will also be um, easier when there are particular projects that need funding. So if branches come to me and say I need money for this particular project and this is how it fits into the strategy and everything else is in place uh, we just need the money. Um, that would be something that's much easier for you as as fundraising secretary to um to to go out and look for um, a particular source of that, that that money and support the branch in in making these applications than it is the kind of current sort of slightly amorphous um, we need money for the party, which is um which is 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 much harder to fundraise on.
0: Totally, yeah, you're completely correct there, and like therefore we encourage branches to come forward to talk to Leo to talk to myself. Um, if you do have things that you need funding, um come and have those conversations with us. But it is so much easier to fund um, a big, interesting programme in a community or, or a specific idea than just sort of generic running costs for an organisation. No one wants to fund that, but people are looking to fund um, slightly more dynamic ideas. So do come forward to us with those if you are encountering those barriers. All right, and speaking like beyond our term and thinking in the much longer term about where party finances could be, you know, Blue Sky thinking, what's your your vision for the longer term? So my vision
3: is that one day I'd really like to have people who are being supported by the party to do party work. I think at the moment we have a situation where um, the party is demanding of time and demanding of resources from comrades. And I think it would be really good if we were one day in a situation where we could have some people who were being paid by the party to um, to do Revolutionary work to do organizational work to kind of be to have some kind of support from the party. I don't see that as being something that's going to happen anytime soon, but um, but I would really like to get to a situation where we can, through our collective uh pooling of resources, support some comrades to do their party work.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. It's one that, like, unsurprisingly, has sort of bobbed up and down in the party's um thoughts for for some time, and I I guess I one side of it is it fundamentally does change the relationship between that member and the party like you become effectively you know for want of a better term an employee of the party and um, that does change the the relationship quite drastically and that the management of that and so on is um i think quite a, a complex notion um but I, I definitely think it's worth like exploring and like yeah, having these discussions, these debates around it, because there is a question about, as you say, sort of sustainability and how how to be effectively professional revolutionaries if we're if we're not getting that kind of financial assistance.
3: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it does. I think this is why I say it's not something that we can do at our size, because I think it would so fundamentally change the relationship between the comrade and and the party. Um, but I'm I'm thinking as the party grows and as the party becomes itself a more professional machine it will feel I, I think it will lead more naturally into the idea that there are some people who work for the party um, but that is not something that I see happening anytime soon but that is um, I think going to be possibly a necessary step for us at some point
0: totally as will party offices and you know at least having an office and then multiple offices and and all sorts of so many ways that we do need to expand and, and finance itself by all format. absolutely So what do you think that members, branches, caucuses, whoever in the party needs to know regarding finances?
3: I think what I'd like everyone to know is, firstly, that your subs are are incredibly useful. They are incredibly welcome, and we're very grateful for you paying them. Um, Secondly, as regards getting money from the party to fund things, um, what I want you to know is uh, that you should always just come and talk to me if you need money for something. Um, If you are feeling that you personally are... Providing too much of your own money towards branch projects that you that you feel like you'd have want to have a discussion about how branches your branch is spending money or your caucus or your body, um, then please come and talk to me about that. I, I very much want to abide by the the principle of that that the larger and richer branches um, should be supporting the smaller and poorer branches. You know, there's a something communist principle around, I don't know, sharing. Um so um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: something about communism, right?
3: <laughs> and that's something I very much want to abide by in, in in as I in my role as finance secretary. I want to make sure that that we are not putting undue financial burdens on any particular comrade or in, on any particular body.
0: Totally. Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. Um thank you so much for for coming on and talking to me about finances. Really appreciate you.
3: You are very very welcome,
0: comrade. God, I am. I really am. Have a good day.
3: Thank you very much, Colbray, And Have a good day yourself.
0: In our Central Committee meeting this week, we discussed the party's membership restrictions policy, which you can find at the announcer with this broadcast. It's a policy made by the last Central Committee detailing who is restricted from becoming a party member. We're looking to update and edit this as part of our new mandate as a Central Committee, although broadly we're agreed with what's in it already and just want to introduce some more and clearer new one. The Central Committee also discussed how we manage complaints as a committee, and especially looked at how we upskill our members of the committee in being able to handle complaints. Often incidents are handled by the same people, uh, but it's important that we establish a wider pool so as to maximise our effectiveness, reduce the burden on that small group, and generally ensure that useful skills of complaint handling are spread about and consolidated. We'll be looking at developing internal and external resources on complaint handling in the near future. The other body in the party that can be approached to trigger the formal complaints process is the Welfare Forum, and our congratulations to the Welfare Secretaries and ACM for steering that on forming the Welfare Forum over the last fortnight. This is the body for Welfare Secretaries to meet, share best practice and collaborate on party welfare. We're excited to see what comes out of that. The Central Committee also heard reports from branch liaisons about how work is going in various branches. Brushes seem to be doing generally well with some natural variation across different contexts. Often the problem is one of getting going in the early stages of brush development and staying consistent once started. That can be a little demoralising sometimes, but we have to make sure we're pushing forwards and looking to consistently lay foundations for the next steps we need to take. And as we come to the end of this year, it might feel like your energy is dipping a little. Where this has happened, it's natural to come out of summer and congress and that whole season and feel ourselves winding down and nestling in for the cold. Of course COVID itself presents its own layers of stress and difficulty that can't be overstated. On that we do note that different branches will have different needs and concerns to organising in the context of Omicron and whilst we don't have any party-wide guidance at this time we are monitoring the situation and are available to help support branches should you need central committee guidance. But I also think it's worth highlighting our successes in 2021 too and how they're shaping our party. Red Fight Back has more branch work happening on the ground now than ever before We've got weekly stores running across the country, setting up bathroom campaigns, building relationships, with a whole range of organisations, both locally and beyond. It's important we realise that just because we don't see as much day-to-day chatter and comms, it doesn't mean that work isn't happening. If anything, the opposite is true, and members are doing more and better work than ever before. We just don't see it in the same way. We've seen structural renovation to the party introduced at Congress where we redesigned what committees and national structures look like. Of course, Congress itself was a huge success. Caucuses have moved from abstract groups with little to no activity to bodies that meet and organise and exert force within the party. We've re the member applicant process, part of which was launching the MOSS framework that is of method, organising, solidarity and structures as a way to conceptualise cadence development. We went through that difficult but necessary process of moving away from an entry programme of reading and clinical study and towards one of more practical organising and struggle over a longer period of time. And on that, I'm happy to announce that Solidarity Modules will be rolled out immediately into the new year and the Central Committee will be welcoming branches to put forward member applicants for membership approval by the Central Committee by the end of January 2022. More information about that will be going to branches from our new branch development team, uh, Mr. Comrade Chairman Talia. If you do have questions from your branch, do feel free to go to them. 2021 has been a really important year for the party. It's been one of growth and consolidation. And resilience in the context of the pandemic and, and many hardships although of course as ever we do have so much to do let 2022 be the year that we grow larger that we fight harder and we win more see you in 2022 love and solidarity Gary.